Amen. And his steadfast love. Amen. Well, let's get our Bibles out and open to John chapter 3. If you've been around church or the Bible, you might have heard of John chapter 3. Sometimes uh, people quote a verse out of John chapter 3. You can find that on page 1222 there in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, we have been, for the past couple of months, studying through the Gospel of John. We find ourselves now at this sort of very pivotal moment of this encounter where Jesus will encounter this man named Nicodemus and he will encounter birth. And it's something that we'll probably spend a few weeks talking about, but this morning as we kind of get into it, I want you to just think with me for a moment about some of the, some of the things that we experience as believers, some of the things that we uh, just sort of take for granted in our culture, in our day and age when it comes to uh, Christianity or uh, conversations with people. It wouldn't be uncommon for me to have a conversation with somebody or even for us to hear a, a baptism testimony that says, uh, well, you know, when I was a child, I was maybe 10 years old, I began to sense this desire to know God, this longing to have God in my life. And a few years after that, I uh, made my way to a church. I began attending a church. Maybe I was invited by a friend, started going to youth group. And through the course of uh, going to church, I made a profession of faith. I was baptized, and I stayed in the church for a while and uh, tried to acclimate myself to that culture and that uh, lifestyle. But really, nothing really changed. And, you know, when I hit my teenage years, uh, there were new temptations and new struggles that began to uh, reveal themselves in my life. And so I began to really battle with those things. And I found myself in a place where I knew I was far from where I'd originally wanted to go. And so I, again, as a teenager, sought out God and made my way to uh, a different church. And uh, as I went to that church, I walked that aisle and got baptized for a second time. And this church was different than the first church. This church uh, was a, a church that was very uh, strong on uh, giving things up and obeying the rules and doing the things that uh, God had called you to do. And so he, you know, he or she gets involved in that church. And so for a while, they begin to, to strive and to work to uh, do all the things that the people around them are sort of uh, telling them that they need to be doing. Uh, trying to behave the, the way a person ought to behave and, and just striving in their own strength to, uh, to do all these things. But it doesn't take long before you're trying and you're trying and you're trying and, and then you realize that you can't keep up. You can't keep uh, holding this weight up. And uh, just, it's just exhausting and, and you begin to, cracks begin to develop in your perception of things. And you begin to realize that the people around you that you once thought were doing such a great job of, of uh, holding all these things up aren't doing such a great job themselves. And so then you begin to question things. And so 
again begin to retreat and back away. And at this point, you start to lose hope. You start to give up and think, you know, is God even available? I mean, how can a person even know God? And so as a, a young adult, uh, pressing in again to yet another church that's different from the first two and going into that church and again walking an aisle, again joining a church, again being baptized for the third time, hoping and praying that this would be the change that they've been looking for. But again, no, after some time it becomes apparent that nothing's really changed and that they're really the same person. It's not different. There's no power. And so you just give up. You throw your hands in the air and you say, forget it. And uh, I, I tried God and that didn't work. And I, I, I've, I've been through the gamut. I've, I've tried this. I've tried that. Nothing seemed to make a difference. And so you go on into young adulthood. Maybe you go off to boot camp, go in the military. Maybe you get married, you start a family, but you just put all that behind you and you start moving forward. But then eventually, just life begins to press in and take over. And you start thinking those thoughts again like, hmm, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a, a way to get to God. And so maybe in that moment, they start rummaging through their chest of drawers and they pull that old Bible out that they used to have when they were younger and open it up and start reading. Maybe you start reading in the New Testament. So you start reading in Matthew chapter 1 and as you're reading, it doesn't take you long and you get into... Uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, you get into the Sermon on the Mount, and you realize pretty quickly that, again, Jesus is saying things that you know in your heart you're not going to be able to keep up with. You're not going to be able to live up to. It's just too, it's, it's too high. It's too difficult. It's too hard. And so just as you're ready to shut the Bible, you flip over to Mark, and you start reading, and you find the same thing there. And then Luke, you start reading, and you find the same thing there. But before you give up, you flip over to the Gospel of John, and as you're reading, you encounter this story about Jesus and Nicodemus, the one we'll look at this morning. And after everything that you've been through, you read this story of this man, Nicodemus, and how he comes to Jesus, and, and even though you have this track record behind you of, of all these, uh, you know, failures as you see it, and, and, and all these strivings to get somewhere, that story begins to birth a little hope in your life and this time you don't go looking for a church or a pastor you just start reading and when you get through with Jesus and Nicodemus you put the Bible down and get down on your knees and close your eyes and just begin to beg God to give you what God was talking to Nicodemus about you just say, God, give me, please, new life. I want to be born again. I need a, I need a new start. I, I don't need a new process or a new program. I need a new st start. And God, will you 
Will you allow me? Will you help me? Will you give me this experience of being born again? And you see, after praying that prayer, after having your heart in that posture before God, after for the very first time realizing that it's not about a, a, a process, it's not a program, it's about a person. And putting all the religion aside and just opening your heart up to a relationship with God, you realize you're, you're born again. And the way you realize that is in the months that follow. Because things are different. You're, you're not perfect. You still struggle. But you're different. You are, and you're, and you're a little more different every passing month than you were the month before. That, that you're different from the inside out. Instead of trying with all your might not to do things, your desires are different. Your affections are different. Your priorities are different. And you see, it's not because you're trying to do things that are good or right. But it's because you realize that you're completely unable to do what's right. And you cast yourself on Christ and Him alone. And by the new birth, you're experiencing now newness in this old and broken world. That ought not be so common of a story, but it is. And we could talk all morning about why that's so. What I'd rather do is just sort of open up this passage and then maybe we'll spend the next couple of weeks really just diving in and, and making sure that everything that God wants us to know about this new birth, we, we know. So if you get your listening guide out, let me give you two thoughts to get started this morning. And the first one is simply this. Religion says, by an external system of works, you can gain God's favor. You see, that story just exhibits a person who desires the favor of God, which is not it's not unnatural to desire the favor of God. It's not unnatural to, uh, to think that just like in every other arena of your life, that you can do good things and, and, and earn God's favor, just like you earn the favor of your parents growing up, or just like you earn the favor of your teachers in school, or your boss at work, or whatever the case may be. But then you find out that regeneration says something completely different, which is by the internal gift God gives you life through Jesus Christ and so those two opposing thoughts because that's really what is happening here in John chapter 3 you've got someone in Nicodemus who is an extraordinarily religious person who is coming to Jesus and he is seeking or he wouldn't be there and he he desires things certainly he is certainly a person who has a desire to know and have the favor of God. But he is stuck in religion. And Jesus begins to talk to him about regeneration. And we begin to see that religion is something that 
we do. It's something that, that we are, that we are involved in. And it's something that creates a system by where we convince ourselves that we're able to somehow earn our way into the favor of God, that somehow it, it, it makes sense in the human consciousness to believe that when we get to the end of this life, that God's going to weigh out all the good things and all the bad things that we did. And if the good things outweigh the bad things, then He's going to let us into heaven. But that doesn't make any sense to the Bible. But it, it does make sense to the carnal mind. And again, to the carnal mind, regeneration comes along and says, no, all of your righteousness is filthy rags. And there is nothing that you can do to help yourself. But God has offered His Son to make a way for you, a free gift. Just the grace of God by faith. That again, to the carnal mind, it, it doesn't add up. It would seem, well, there's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be something that I'm missing. And so, here we are in a world and in a culture that's not that different from the culture that Nicodemus and Jesus had this conversation in. Because the truth is, is that today there are people all over the place, sitting in churches all over the place, and there are some people sitting in this church, I'm sure, who believe in Jesus and believe that you're going to heaven. And in those two things, you... Find comfort that everything's going to be okay. And yet Jesus would say to that, no, that is not the gospel. That is not what eternal life is. Neither of those two things in and of themselves or the combination of those two things constitute anything that Scripture says about being born again. You see... We know because we have been prepared for today by the passages that precede this passage that saying that you believe in Jesus, James would say the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. They, they, they have an emotional response to their belief in Jesus. And so believing in Jesus... Everyone says that they believe in Jesus. No, Jesus here is not talking to people who would profess to be atheists. You know, like the way I grew up. That's not the people Jesus is talking to. That's not who Nicodemus is. When Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, we need to know before we even get into this this morning that he's talking to multitudes of world-loving, lukewarm church attenders. People who are stooped in ritual. And they believe. He's talking to the person who is abusive at home to their spouse or to their family, but then in church on Sunday mornings. He's talking to the person who lives with somebody and sleeps with somebody that they're not married to but is in church on Sunday mornings. He's talking to the person who 
as they go about their daily lives are really unrecognizable to, to anyone that they're different in any way than all the other people around them, yet they go to church. That's the people that Jesus is talking to when he speaks to Nicodemus. And it really just helps us understand uh, the gravity and the weight of these words. So let's pray and then we'll jump in together. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your perfect and errant word. Thank you for the gift of scripture, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus that you'll help us this morning, that you'll give us ears to hear, that, Lord, you will help us to overcome the obstacles in our heart, to believe the things even that we say we believe. But, Lord, when we hear them afresh and anew, we realize how confrontational they are, how hard they are to swallow sometimes. Lord, help us this morning, please, to be honest with ourselves and before you that you might do your perfect work in each of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So it's Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem. It's kind of a big deal. He's beginning his earthly ministry. You know it's Passover time and uh, uh, the, the city is filled with people. Now, <clears throat> Jesus was big on first impressions, as I told you last week. So he comes into Jerusalem for the first time, and what does he do? Goes into the temple, makes a whip out of cords, and cleans the temple out. So he started uh, his... Uh, uh, he's really doing some, some, some sort of opinion management. You know, He's really making sure that he puts his best foot forward. So he's created quite a commotion uh, in Jerusalem, and people are talking, and he's had his first encounter with the religious elite, and uh, so now it sort of sets the stage for what we, that shocking text we looked at last week at the end of John chapter 2. If you look at the very end of John 2, you see beginning in verse 23 that when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so that's what sets the stage for the conversation with Nicodemus. And like I said last week, there's no chapter breaks or paragraph breaks. In other words, when John, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens this gospel out it just goes straight from if you just imagine and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man there was a man verse 1 of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews now that's sort of a strange way to introduce us to Nicodemus why, why doesn't John just say that there was a man, his name was Nicodemus. He doesn't tell us that. Instead, he wants us to know about this Nicodemus. He wants us to know that, that he comes to Jesus as a, a representative of those who are in power and authority. Those who, uh, in the religious sect, had all the clout and all the uh, uh, sort of reputation for being... Uh, someone who would be godly, and, and yet Jesus neither accepts or embraces any of this. It's as if he's 
completely unfazed by uh, who Nicodemus is. I would say some things about Nicodemus because uh, we need to sort of understand who he is as a man. Really, he is the perfect embodiment of somebody who is a uh, marginal believer. Somebody who is stooped in religion but is lacking relationship. A couple things about Nicodemus. Number one, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. Now, that's a very elite title. There's only about 6,000 Pharisees uh, at this time, and that's a very, very respected position to be uh, amongst the Pharisees. And uh, in this day and time, they were the most respected of all religious leaders. But he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was also a very high-ranking religious official. The, the Scripture tells us he was also a ruler. He was a ruler. So John gives us this description. He was a ruler of the Jews, indicating that he's uh, no doubt part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. If you read the Talmud, you find all this interesting stuff about uh, Nicodemus, that Nicodemus was one of the most wealthy men in, the, in, in Jerusalem, that he was uh, one of the most sought-after teachers, that people would, would want to hear him lecture on the law, and they would... They would come to him and, and revere his wisdom and knowledge. But as a member of the Sanhedrin, he, wherever he went, he would have been treated as someone of uh, a very official capacity. It would have been like he was a, a governor, if you will, or a senator, or someone who would just by position demand respect. So he was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler, but he was also a scholar. He was a scholar. Now, just in being a Pharisee, he would have been extraordinarily devoted to Scripture. In fact, his devotion to the Scriptures would, uh, would embarrass all of us uh, today. We would all, the best of us today, would look uh, like a complete slacker next to Nicodemus. The fact that he goes by the name Nicodemus, it's a Greek name. It tells us some things about him that it wasn't uncommon for uh, a Jewish family that had prestige and money to give their children multiple names and the fact that he goes by his Greek name would tell us that he's probably very very well traveled that he had experienced a lot of things and that he was also uh, taught under the philosophies of the time and so he was a, a man of the world he was a, an educated man a respected man a Pharisee a ruler and a scholar but here's the question we have to ask this morning why would, what would bring a man like Nicodemus? What, what would bring a man who is a Pharisee, a ruler, and a scholar to desire an encounter with a carpenter from Galilee? I mean, just think about this for a moment. This is the ultimate uh, picture of a... Uh, a small fish in a very large pond. I mean, Jesus is, is a nobody. Jesus is from some hick town. Jesus doesn't have the creed, the pedigree. The, he doesn't have the credentials. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the track record, the lineage. He doesn't have any of the things that a person would need to command respect in this time. Why would this man, the most uh, respected man, someone who had reached the pinnacle of his uh, chosen profession why would he want an encounter with a mere carpenter well why well the scripture tells us that he had observed 
Jesus. He had seen Jesus do miraculous things that through the signs that Jesus had accomplished, it began to uh, bring him to a place where he wanted to know more. So we get to verse 2. The scripture says that he came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he had seen Jesus do some things and he was obviously impressed with the things that Jesus had done enough that he was willing to risk meeting with him because I've can only imagine that if it were discovered that Nicodemus wanted a, an audience with this Jesus, probably uh, the other members of the uh, Sanhedrin or especially other Pharisees would have probably frowned upon that and thought, why would you waste your time with such a one? Why would you give credibility to him by lowering yourself to go and to speak to him? But that's just conjecture. It doesn't tell us that. It just simply says that he came and met with him by night, But it does seem to me that he's convinced enough that he wants to talk to Jesus, but he's not convinced enough that he's willing to do that in the brightness of day, if you will. He's, not, he's willing to take some risk to talk to Jesus, but he's not willing to risk it all, maybe. I want you to notice that when Nicodemus begins to speak, there's some things he says that are fascinating. Number one, notice that he says, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. Well, the text says Nicodemus is there by himself. We know, you know, Jesus probably looking around like, is there somebody else here, son? I mean, in other words, Nicodemus is speaking on behalf of those he represents, that he, he is sort of making sure that he represents powerful other people and that Jesus knows that. But what he says is really a compliment. Notice that now Nicodemus doesn't come across uh, rudely or harshly. He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, endearing term to use. And he, he is clearly saying to Jesus, hey, there, there's things about you that... Uh, are intriguing and, and wonderful. And maybe there's some things I can teach you about how things work here in Jerusalem. Maybe, you know, you, you, might, you might need to work on, you know, maybe, maybe we could start meeting for breakfast and talk about anger management after that little temple deal that you just had, you know. Uh, you know, Jesus, I mean, here we do things a little different than we maybe than you did in Nazareth. You know, this is sort of the big time. But he's kind and he says, you know, you're a teacher come from God. No one could do the things that you do if God wasn't with him. But Jesus, who knows what's in men, immediately answers Nicodemus, almost interrupts him. It's almost like Nicodemus just sort of gets the first thought out of his mind, and then before he can continue, verse 3 just jumps in, and Jesus answers him and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, kind, 
wonderful, loving, gentle shepherd. This man comes to him at night and, and pays him a compliment. And Jesus just cuts right to the chase. Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you for your kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, but let me tell you some things that, you know, I think you ought to know. No, he basically says to him, Sir, you in your present condition have zero chance of ever seeing the kingdom of God. Now, for this guy, Nicodemus, to hear this, I mean, think about this for a second. Here is a guy who is radically devoted to God. Radically devoted. I mean, this is someone who would be, I mean, his his. His work and his devotion and his daily life's endeavor is to be pleasing unto God. And he certainly is not uh, afraid to do hard things. And Jesus says to him, you have no spiritual life in you whatsoever. Well, that's kind of harsh. So here's a question. Because we need to just think for a minute about you know, we, we defined religion and regeneration, but now we need to sort of come back and just think through a few things. Is it possible that religion could be used to camouflage isolation from God? Is that possible? I'm pretty sure that the answer to that question was perfectly expounded in a baptism video this morning, wasn't it? That you can, in religion... Convince yourself that you're okay and you can feel completely fine about everything. Even though you're not, you, know, you, you, you think things aren't right, but you just chalk that up to, well, you just can't understand everything. And Is it possible to use it to camouflage isolation from God? Next, you can go to church or mass every week. For years, for decades, for a lifetime, and you can hear religion telling you that you're okay with God. I mean, you can be so devoted and so faithful. And what you're going to hear religion tell you is that you're okay with God. You don't need to uh, change anything or do anything different. You're fine. And that you can trust in the system, and the system's going to get you to where you want to be. But what's really happening here, in reality, it's just tickling your ears and telling you what you want to be true. See, that, that's what religion is so proficient at. It's just reading the things that the heart desires and, and really just, just on a surface level, just tickling our ears and telling us what we want to be true. Yes, I just so want that to be true. And so when you tell me that, I just agree. And how many times have you or in a group of people or been in a group of people where somebody said something that was it's completely untrue, but it sounded good, and then other people in the group said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. And the whole time you're thinking, but it's not true. I mean, it might make you feel good, but it's not true. So we see this every time there's a, a national disaster or some celebrity 
dies. And then we hear commentary from people who are otherwise unspiritual suddenly on, in the media or on television saying things like, well, they're in a better place now. Well, doesn't that sound good? It, it sounds good. And then everybody kind of nods along like, yeah, they're in a better place. And I'm thinking, well, what place? Well, on what basis? I mean, how do you know that? Now, what, do you know something about them that we don't know? I mean, what? You know, they're, they're looking down on us right now and, and, and smiling. Well, that sounds good, I guess. But it's, it's not true. See, the whole time, we're just masking the reality that we're not okay with God. It's sort of like every funeral that I preach. You know, I have to address the reality that everybody in the room just doesn't want to think about the fact that they're going to die. But whether you want to think about it or not, it's, you're going to die, and it's true, and you need to think about it. Well, we say things in mass of reality that we're not okay with God. And in reality, we're totally separated from Him. Totally. But yet we can just say, well, you know, they're in a better place, or it's going to be okay, or I'm in the system, or whatever. So a couple points about the new birth. Number one, the new birth is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. I think really the shocking thing that Jesus says here is that it's necessary that that not only are you not going to go to heaven if you're not born again, but you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. I mean, in other words, you're not even going to get close to the kingdom of God. I mean, you have no shot. I mean, he just, he so narrows the scope here that it's just, it's unbelievable. When he says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then later in verse 7, he says, you must be born again. I mean, he he didn't say you ought to. You ought to think about it, consider it, pray about it. He said, it's very simple. You must be born again. If you're not born again, then forget about it. There's no plan B. There's no other option. You must be born again. And... We realize that when he's talking to Nicodemus, that he's not only talking to Nicodemus, but he's talking to me and you. He's talking to us. And he's saying, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And you must be born again. That there's not one of us in any time, under any circumstances, that we will ever, ever know God without being born again. You'll never have a relationship with Him. You'll never go to heaven. That there is no possible way. It is absolutely essential that you're born again. That is a shocking statement, which leads me to think, well, boy, we ought to really be clear on what born again is, don't you think? I mean, that's something we ought to know. I mean, no matter what you think this morning, at the very least, we've all got to say, man, I mean... We've got to really nail this thing down, right? So, number two, the new birth is God's work and not ours. See, here's where when you really start to dig down into the new birth, you realize religion starts going off the tracks. 
It's God's work and not ours. Notice what Nicodemus says in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, in what Nicodemus asks, which makes complete sense considering the fact that here you are an expert teacher of the law. And someone says to you, you must be born again. And you've never heard that term before. I mean, I I remember the first time I ever heard that term. Now, you know that I've said this a thousand times, that, that my entire childhood, all the way growing up into adulthood, no one ever shared the gospel with me. No one ever came to my house and shared the gospel with me. I never saw a Bible, held a Bible, didn't know anything. I was just talking with somebody yesterday and, uh, I was, we were talking about something, and Easter came up, and I looked at them and said, my whole life, I never knew Easter had anything to do with Jesus, ever. Not ever. I mean, I never knew that. I had no clue of that. But there was one incident in my life where I heard the term born again. So this would be my only sort of religious experience growing up. When I was in junior high... Uh, I was the, the king of tetherball. So God had blessed me with tall stature. And the best way to impress girls in junior high is to win at tetherball. And so I had perfected the art of playing tetherball. And I had one nemesis. His name was Richard Acock. And I was thinking about him yesterday. I'm going, I should look him up. I mean, I'm thinking maybe there's probably somebody who's going to listen to this morning. I know that guy. Anyway, so Richard was the only guy. He was tall like me, and he was the only guy that would give me a run for my money. I don't remember him. He might have been a year older than me, but I don't remember. But anyway, so we would, you know, beat everybody else, and it would always end up me and him playing each other, and then that would go down to, you know, one or the other of us would, would win. And so we really didn't have a friendship. It was really more of a... He was really my nemesis. I would really put him that way. And one day, out of the clear blue sky, we get done playing Tyler Ball. I guess the bell rang or something. We were walking back to class. And he just blurts out to me. It was like a Monday. And he goes, guess what happened to me this weekend? I'm like, I don't know. Surprise me. I mean, I, I really was a jerk. Trust me. So I probably said something super smart out especially if I just beat him. And he said to me, I got born again. And I distinctly remember thinking, dude, you should be in a mental institution. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I didn't even answer him. I just remember going to class going, do, 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 do. I mean, because it was just, who says that? I mean, I didn't even necessarily associate that to religion. I just thought that was weird. Now imagine Nicodemus. He hears Jesus. I mean, you know, Nicodemus is thinking, is this some kind of some kind of hick town ritual y'all do out in the country or something? I mean, what, you know, what are you talking about born again? So he asked a, a very appropriate question. I mean, I wasn't smart enough in junior high to go, well, Richard. And 
plus, you know, even now it kind of grosses me out. So when you're in junior high, you're just not going to say this. But he asked the question, I mean, how can you be born again when you're old? I mean, come on. But, but listen, he is teaching us something in that. I mean, obviously, look, what he's saying is this is impossible. You, you notice that? He, he, he's saying, he's equating some, some factual information that none of us chose to be born. None of us determined that we would be born and were born. None of us had anything to do with our, our birth. It was something that happened to us. It was something that was externally done outside of us. We were just born. We didn't have anything to do with that. See, Nicodemus is starting to drive home the point that well, what you're saying, Jesus, is impossible. Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the fact that you, you can't do this, yeah. I mean, think about Jesus is telling Nicodemus to do something that even though at this point Nicodemus doesn't understand it, the only thing he does understand is that what you just said may be a little weird, but it's impossible, right? Yeah, he gets that. And so he's beginning to get the fact that, yes, it is impossible. It's impossible for you to give birth to yourself. That's impossible. You can't even cause that to happen. It's impossible. The, the term born again, it literally means born from above. Other places in Scripture where it, uh, the same term is used in the Greek, it's translated born from above. The reason it's translated here, born again, is because clearly, based on verse 4, Nicodemus understands it as that. And so that's the conversation that they're having. But if you think about it, you, you can't, it's impossible for you to be born from above. Maybe that's a little easier way for you to understand the impossibility of being born, born again. That's just impossible. And so the new birth, it's, it's God's work and it's not our work. And number three... The new birth is revealed by its effects. And so here's really where it gets most controversial or confrontational. Is that it's revealed by its effects. Now notice what Jesus says when Nicodemus sort of, uh, you know, expresses the impossibility of what he's saying. Jesus then, in verse 5, responds, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus, very illustratively and colorfully, begins to unravel this necessity that's impossible humanly speaking and how all this works together now when he says unless one is born of water and the spirit I mean just that phrase right there has been so maligned and so debated and so many people teach that thing in so many ways and, and I can remember uh, I can remember years ago where I was absolutely convinced that uh, that that 
phrase, born of water and the Spirit, that the born of water was the natural birth, you know? Like, so, I mean, I, I would just think, well, that makes sense because I know that when, before my children were born, Lisa's water broke, so it made sense to me. But as I really just began to grow and understand the Scripture, I realized, well, no, that really doesn't make sense. That's not at all what Jesus has in mind, I don't believe. Plus, there's, there's a whole contingency of people who will use that phrase to say that what Jesus is saying here is he's teaching baptismal regeneration. He's teaching that you have to be baptized to be saved, which, boy, you talk about a stretch. I mean, that absolutely can't be true on, on a, a number of levels. I mean, let's just make sure that we understand that Jesus is clearly not talking about baptism. Well, how do we know that? Well, first of all, if Jesus meant baptism, if, if Jesus was... Whenever I have a conversation with someone who believes that you've got to be baptized to be saved, I always use these two points. I always say, number one, if, you ha- if Jesus was telling Nicodemus that you have to be baptized to be saved, then how in the world can you explain the fact that Jesus didn't baptize anybody according to Scripture? That don't you think a person who came to seek and to save that which was lost would have been going around having baptism crusades everywhere he went? Wouldn't he have been telling everybody, hey, come on, it's time to get baptized? He he didn't tell his disciples when he walked up to his disciples and say, hey, why don't you come get baptized? He said, follow me. So clearly... Jesus was not teaching that it was baptism or else he would have been a baptizing machine, right? Second of all, you can just think about some other places in Scripture where this would utterly negate that teaching. I mean, it could be Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, the book of Acts, but especially the thief on the cross who Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Can't you imagine when he looks over at Jesus on the cross and says, Lord... And Jesus says, man, bummer, dude. Wish you had time to get baptized, but you don't. So it's going to go bad for you. No. So that's just not, that just doesn't add up. It can't be that. And there's a whole bunch of other reasons. But just to make sure that we're all clear that, that that's not what it is. So what does Jesus have in mind when he says... Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom. And then he goes on and talks about what's born of the flesh is flesh, and the Spirit is spirit, and then the, the wind. Well, he's talking to Nicodemus. And so he's going to say something to Nicodemus that, that, that Nicodemus is going to connect to. In other words, he's told him about being born again, which blew Nicodemus's mind. And so now, in explanation, he's got to connect to something that Nicodemus could connect to. And so I believe he's speaking about Ezekiel 36, which says, The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your Flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, remember, 
the point that I'm making here is that this new birth is going to be revealed by its effects. And so Jesus then begins to talk about water and cleansing and the spirit that, he, that, that God's promised to put within his people. And so Nicodemus knows this passage very well. It's memorized it, knows everything about it. And so he's connecting to what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus begins to connect all this, and he's talking about the wind. And he says, you know, when the wind blows, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. And he's saying, listen, when the new birth comes into a life, you don't see a person necessarily be born again. What you see are the effects of a person being born again. Now, before we leave Ezekiel 36, let's just back up and, and keep that in mind. And I'll reread verse 27. He says, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them there will be like the wind blowing a quantifiable result there will be something that we can see we won't see everything but there will be there'll be evidence that it will be revealed by the effects of it and yet here we are in a land filled with churches that are filled with people that are committed, utterly committed and devoted to religious ritual and working hard and striving to be what a Christian is supposed to be. You, you know, when... when when salvation comes into your life just completely out of nowhere, like it did mine. When you're, you're already grown, and so you're, you're, you just go from absolute paganism all your life to suddenly something brand new, then it's, it's very easy to, to understand this, to, to, to see the, the, the difference and to see what, what God is speaking about I, I can remember that that feeling of you know walking in newness of life and being so grateful for what God had just accomplished in my life and knowing that there was so much about it I didn't understand and then looking around me looking to the people around me to sort of figure out you know like so what am I supposed to do and how was I supposed to do it and realizing very quickly that if you're not careful you just get sucked right into a, a process of, of doing what supposedly is what the Christian life is supposed to be like and trying and trying and trying and trying to live up to some standard. But it doesn't take you long to figure out the standard's always moving. Man, I got off that, I mean, I jumped off that ship. But I watched a lot of people around me always jumping for the carrot and the carrot always moving just as they were trying to get to it and, and just working and working and working to try to be something that they thought God wanted them to be and just exhausting themselves. 
Mm-mm. You keep trying and you keep trying. And then eventually you get worn out. You just flat get worn out. And the way that you know that this is going on is because there's no joy. There's no joy in striving. There's just no joy. There's no joy in in this man-centered effort of trying to live up to some expectation. But here's the thing. If you you are trying to convince yourself, think back to my story in the opening. If 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 you're this young man or this young woman and you desperately want a fresh start, and you, you think, well, this is, what, uh, this, this is what I hope is true, and this is the way I think you achieve it, then you're going to give yourself to doing those things, and you're going to work hard because you want them to be true. You want everything to be okay. And so you're going to give your, your dead-level best effort to try to achieve everything you can, but you're miserable. You're miserable. I, I just remember so vis- vividly, Just picking up on the fact that, wow, marveling at at the reality that there were people who professed to receive the same thing I received, and they were grumpy, man. That blew my mind. I was so happy. I was so grateful. And I just couldn't understand, like, what are you grouchy about? Why are you so negative? Why are you down on everything? I I don't understand that. Don't you know what Jesus just did? And so I just, you know, that's not biblical Christianity. I just kept reading my Bible and reading my Bible. See, according to Scripture, when you receive the new birth, you get a new heart. You get a new heart. Man, when you get a new heart, that new heart comes preloaded with all kinds of amazing software. That new heart you get, that new heart has new affections and new desires and new loves. See, here's the amazing thing, is that I had all the baggage a person can have, just like everybody else when I came to Christ. And I was trying to get away from all those bad, negative things in my life. But when I got a new heart, instead of having to grit my teeth and try to, try to, push myself to to leave things that I really loved and try to convince myself that things that were not that great and not that fun were really going to replace all the things that I used to be doing. That's not going to work. My affections changed. When you get a new heart, you don't want the old things. Those old things, they, they lose their luster. All of the facade is wiped away and you begin to see them for what they really are. Now, you don't just immediately transform into this perfectly developed, mature Christian. But when you receive the new birth and you receive a new heart, there is a distinct change in the way you feel about the things that you used to do and the person you used to be and and the, the pull that those things used to have begins to diminish. It begins to dwindle. I remember one day I was just... I got up one morning. I was reading in the book of Romans... And I just realized for the very, I mean, it just, just hit me. I'm reading Romans and all of a sudden I read and the scripture says that sin no longer has authority over me. And I just wanted to jump up and say, what? 
I mean, like, I got this new Chuck Norris spirit in me against sin, and I don't, it has no authority. And so then I was, I was so excited about it. So then I just literally began to think about all the things I'm fixing the Judy child. They're getting out. I mean, things I hadn't even been thinking about. I wasn't even worried about them. I'm like, they got, they got, they got to go. Because I got this new power. I got this new weapon. I got this new, I didn't, I didn't want them. Like the wind. You see, if you'd have seen me, The day I came down and stood in front of a church, you wouldn't have said, wow, look at that. He's a completely different person. But if you bumped into me a few weeks later, you'd have thought, hmm, there's something different about you, man. You changed. And instead of trying to convince myself, like, man, I really want to do that, but it's wrong, and I know I shouldn't do that, I had a new heart. It had a new desires and new affections. And, and I, I wanted what God wanted for me. I wanted, what, I, I wanted to obey God. I, I want to know what God wants me to know. See, it made sense. The 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Yeah, yeah. It takes time. But he's a new creation. Things are different. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I like the very next verse. It says, now all things are of God. Isn't that good? See? It's like everything in my life, you know, was just different. I didn't know how to explain it. But then, as I began to grow in in knowledge and understanding, I began to realize, yeah, that's what happened. I was, I was born again. Like so many of you, as I'm talking about my story, you're like, yeah, I was born again. Yeah, that's what happened. And over time, we just start wanting what God wants. We realize, man, all those things that used to entice me, are so frivolous and foolish. They're such a waste of time. Like, what was I thinking? What a fool was I? Like, I could just see clearly. So, can we just agree this morning that Jesus wants us to know that the new birth is not invisible? I mean, it's mysterious. It's like the wind. We don't really understand the wind. We don't know why the wind does what it does. We, we've gotten to the point now where we're pretty good at trying to predict it, but still it's a very dicey situation. You know, the wind really has a mind of its own, doesn't it? But we all know it's real. And we all see its effects. And nobody would look at the effects of the wind blowing hard against something and say, that's not wind. We know it when we see it, right? Yeah. It's like the new birth. So can we just agree this morning that, guys, if, if, we, if we create a Christianity where a person can 
know God and receive salvation and yet continue to live the life that looks exactly like a non-Christian? Not only is that impossible according to Scripture, but it's blasphemy. Because do you know what it's saying to the world? See, what frustrates me most about this is, is not only that it's completely untrue, but that it says to the world that there's a God that you can know that's so powerful that He can forgive your sin and that He can make a way for you to be in heaven with Him, but He's not good enough to change your everyday life. It's sort of the way that you and I feel when we find out that somebody that we know is married to somebody who only considers themselves married in title alone. And that they really live their life as if they're single. And when you find that out, you're just, your heart just sinks because you think... They never really loved them at all. I mean, if it couldn't change your everyday life, it, it, then you really didn't love them at all. So what does it say about God if it doesn't change your everyday life? If you can't see change, if people don't see change. Not change externally, trying to conform to a system but new heart change from the inside where your desires, you're motivated by new desires and affections. Yeah. That's the God of the Scripture. That's the God who says you must be born again. So the question for us this morning is, are we born again? Are you born again? And I just believe with all my heart that the God of Scripture wants you to know that more than me or anybody else. He wants you to know that. He's not, he, that there's one thing that I'm sure that God's not trying to hide from you. He wants you to know where you stand with Him. Because if He didn't, He wouldn't be a good father. And so if you open your heart this morning and say, God, I really want to know. Am I born again? I believe the Spirit of God will reveal that to you. And then the question will be, do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to respond to God and to receive this new life, this rebirth that only He can give? Well, I don't know, only you know that. But I just challenge you this morning to be honest before God. Ask Him to search your heart and to show you. And He will. And He will. Is it a scary thing to break stride with what you've always done? Is it a scary thing to 
step out in, in faith and people around you that are so convinced that you're one thing and now you're saying, well, you know, it's hard. It's hard. But you must be born again or you won't even see the kingdom of God. So really, what else matters? Let's stand and bow our heads.